welcome to ActCore, all the colours of racism. The aim of this podcast is to highlight the lesser known aspects of racism, presenting an alternative view. We hope to shed light on casual racism and aspects of this society may have previously overlooked. We want you to reflect on your opinions and think, why? Why do you have this opinion? And is it justified? And what is it society classifies as either racist or not racist? Where do we draw the line? This is Atcor. Racism is not just black and white. Hello, my name is Hamza Hussain and welcome to another episode of the Atcor podcast where we discuss aspects of racism that you may not have considered before. Today, I'm joined by Rihanna, and she might like to introduce herself now. Hi, my name is Rihanna Marshall, and I'm here on another episode of ACCOR to discuss other aspects of racism, which are spoken about in the community. Okay, so the topic of this episode is the sound of the people. And essentially what it's meant to do is allow our listenership to give their opinions and for us to then talk about those opinions because it's important for us as a podcast and as a community to look at what people care about and what matters the most to our listeners. And so we have a list of things we're going to go through. And the first one is quotas. And so what do you mean by quotas? Quotas we see in sport sometimes, we see them in industry and in, and in employment. A lot of industries nowadays will set quotas in order to improve diversity. Say, for example, they might say they want at least 10% of their, um, 10% of their employed people to come from a certain race or background. And we're going to discuss whether or not we think that's effective. Yeah, so one point to say on this is that the aim of these quotas are to obviously increase diversity in fields where not where there, where it doesn't seem to be actually diverse. However, some people also do feel like these quotas are inherently racist due to, due to their past. For example, about 40 years ago, 50 years ago, quotas were actually used to limit the amount of, for example, Jewish people and non-white people in workforces, which is why the history of quotas may be seen as racist. However, if we actually are applying it to the present day workforce, the aim is completely different, though to some people that history of racism with it makes even the present day solution of quotas to still be racist. Another reason why people might look at quotas as racist in the modern day is because they limit the amount of people from certain communities that can access a job. I know in America with the Ivy League universities, there have been numerous lawsuits and scandals regarding, I think, with affirmative action. Essentially, what it's meant to do in practice is allow people from underrepresented groups access the best levels of education. But instead, what it's unintentionally done is prevented people from Asian-American backgrounds. So we're talk, when we say Asian-American, we mean places like India, China, Japan, Korea, from accessing these places because they do so well in um, admissions tests because of their cultural setting. Also, another issue surrounding this is, for example, there was a company in Southeast London and they wanted to allow 15% more black people into their company. And when discussing this, they they claimed that there, there will be less people that are actually well suited to the job less people that are qualified to the job due to how society is actually structured. And so despite this, they said, well, even if there are people that are less qualified, we still need to fill up 
this 15% quota. However, some people see, say, see this as racist, as the company can be described as saying that they need to lower their standards to allow people of color, black people, any other minority community into their company. And to say that would be somewhat, can be perceived to somewhat be assuming that these people and these other communities, even though, yes, there is a lack of qualifications due to society, the fact that you would claim to have to lower your standard shows that there's always going to be this gap and that and then saying it in itself would be saying that the minority minority groups aren't to the same standard, not to the same capabilities as the majority work white what the majority white workforce. Well, this is my issue with, with quotas because any system of employment, in my opinion, should be meritocratic. But having quotas can sometimes mean that it's not the best person who gets the job but the person who fits the company's requirements in terms of background. The only place where I think that quotas have a place is say, for example, in communities like South Africa, which have had a massive history of racism through the apartheid system. And when that ended in 1994, the, the first black government under Mandela introduced a system of quotas in order to rebalance power in the country. And in that case, it was very much justified because of how great the disparity was and there was a need for quite drastic change. But in a place like London, which is quite metropolitan, quite diverse, is it fair to say we want a certain number of people from this background if it's gonna harm the quality of the business? I know, for example, I've never seen a quota that says we want a certain amount of white working class people or a certain amount of people from um, a background of coming from care, even though people from those backgrounds tend to do the worst in society. And so if you are really trying to redistribute and have an equal system, why would we ignore those people and just focus on the buzzwords of sort of being people or people of colour, etc.? Yeah, because there are also other aspects of the community, as you were saying, which aren't well represented in work workforces. And it seems that now, even though quotas aim to reduce that this lack of diversity, it only kind of tries to reduce what the media tells them should be reduced, if that makes sense. 100%. I get exactly what you're saying. I think that's the issue. The fact that the media and popular culture has such an influence on recruiting policies when it comes to race, because even people with disabilities, for example, probably have a much harder time getting a job than a black person in certain circumstances, but they won't receive the same help because the media doesn't really care. So it doesn't do anything for the company's image. Yeah, and also I'd say another problem surrounding quotas is the fact that this idea of quotas, which is actually which is actually in the public, actually kind of like, how do I describe it? It pushes this like this idea that there should be a separation between different minority groups and white people. And that in turn does actually lead to resentment of a lot of, let's say really hard working class white people. The way they may perceive it is they're not getting the job due to the fact of this quota needs to be filled. And in doing this, that leads to resentment and more hatred towards other minority groups. And even though that's not the aim of the quotas, it still in turn does do that. And there have been examples where a workforce has not decided to hire a certain candidate due to the fact that there's this other candidate that will help fill that, that quota that they want. Definitely, I 100% agree with you on that one. The reason we've seen a massive increase in support for groups like UKIP or more nationalistic groups from working class white people is because they feel like they're ignored. They're sometimes referred to in the media as the forgotten, the forgotten people, because even though they, in some circumstances, are suffering the same amounts of poverty as the rest of us, 
they're considered not a priority for government because it doesn't look, look as good on, on an, a headline saying we've helped a bunch of poor white people than saying we've uplifted a black community. And so that's why when we're looking at equality, we really have to be careful in how we go about that. Oh, I just want to have um, a final comment on the fact yeah. that whilst, yes, there should be structures in place to help black communities, Asian communities, because yes, they actually, there is a lack of diversity and these structures should be there to help them. There should also be structures for the other disadvantaged categories. And so these quotas shouldn't just be aimed at, for example, many people of color. And if there are going to be quotas, it should actually be more representative because lots of them are just like having 5% here, 15% here. Mm. And even though they do use terms as at least, as you said, as you pointed out earlier, it, it can be used to cap the amount of people in the workforce. So moving on to our, our second point of discussion, which is the recently released race report. If you don't know what this is, the government commissioned a report into the situations regarding race in the UK following the, the BLM movement and the George Floyd incident in the summer of 2020. And just, I wanna double check this. I believe it was chaired by Dr. Tony Shewell, uh, who is a, a black man, but the report has garnered a lot of criticism because it comes to the conclusion that institutional racism doesn't exist in the UK. It also went as far as to say that the UK should be seen as a model for other countries and how to approach race relations, which for many people will be seen as quite hurtful, especially if they're experiencing racism on a near daily basis to be told that, well, this is the model society, this is what people should be aiming for. Of course, that's gonna hurt them. Yeah, because whilst like Britain is trying to portray this image that there is not institutionalized racism, that kind of does dismiss the struggles of many people or many minority groups that are actually in Britain. And so it, it's disregarding their problems, their struggles, anything that they have experienced due to being a minority group and just saying that this is not the case in Britain when you can't speak on the experience of every single person. Mm. There was a very, very famous inquiry into institutional racism in the police published in 1999, chaired by a white person in response to the Stephen Lawrence case. Now, if you don't know about the Stephen Lawrence case, he was a young black man from London who was attacked by a group of, um, of white youths who were assumed to have racist intentions. They went on to stab him and he uh, later unfortunately passed away. The issue was, is, was the police were seen to have, have investigated the incident poorly because of institutional racism. And so an inquiry was made into it. And this inquiry was very significant to the UK because it clearly said in black and white that the British police, especially the Metropolitan Police, was institutionally racist. Now, what has changed between then and now for the report released to say that there isn't, this isn't the case? Because a lot of the situations talked about here haven't changed. In the UK, black men are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched than their white counterparts. And under Section 60 emergency powers, they're up to 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched. And so there's a case to be made that nothing has really changed since the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. And therefore, it's untruthful for Dr. Tony Shuel to say that institutional racism hasn't existed because he hasn't highlighted what has changed since that time. Yeah, like, you're, like as you're saying on your point, like they can't claim it, but it doesn't exist when there has been no change from it. Mm. Exactly, exactly the point I'm making, because to say that institutional racism has disappeared, well then, if you're gonna do that, tell me when institutional racism was here, tell me what was the extent of institutional racism and what has changed that has meant that this has suddenly disappeared? 
Was there a point, was there a year that institutional racism disappeared? Was it a gradual thing? I think these are questions that Dr. Tony Shaw has to answer for because the experiences of myself and many other people in the UK is that institutional racism definitely does exist and cultural racism in this country to some extent still does exist. Maybe not so much in London, but definitely in other parts of the UK. And at a time like now, when black communities have such a low faith in government in regards to things like the vaccine, is it a wise move to be telling that same community that, hey, your struggle doesn't exist, you're over-exaggerating, and you should be happy that you're in the UK because we're a model society? Yeah, and with that as well, there's, there's also definitely institution, institutionalised racism in the fact that people that get the same A-levels, for example, the black community, they could get three A-stars compared to their white counterpart and still get being get paid 14.3% less. And in, in itself, that can be seen as institutionalized racism because obviously it's not necessarily their background because they are getting the same grades, getting to the same point, but not being able to advance as much in society. So even though there have been claims that it's because of they get lower grades, so therefore they get paid less, even with the same grades, they are getting paid less. 100%. I think there's a deep economic analysis to be made there as to the circumstances from which um, Black and other minority groups come from when they're applying to applying for jobs, what university they've gone to. And, and obviously that's where the systemic and the institutional racism lies because it shows that there's been failings perhaps in the education system and then in higher education that has meant that black people feel less prepared to go into jobs. And also from a recruiting point of view, perhaps they have still have uh, strong biases that prevent people from entering the best professions. Yes, and also with that point, there's also this argument that does tend to go around that, for example, there's 6% of black, black school leavers that actually attend a Russell Group University and Lots of people go, that's good due to the fact that there's only of a black makeup in the whole of England. However, even if you looked at that, that's not representative of the actual community. So you should actually ask yourself, why is it that such a low percentage actually does get, get to go into a Russell Group University? Because it's not the whole population of every single person in the UK that attends university. So it should be representative if there's, let's say, 10 black people in the UK, then it would make more sense as not all the UK are going back. There's like the di diversity makeup of the universities should be around that percentage. Mm. Yeah, I, I do agree with you that there is a lot of work to be done from the education sector and in how they go about preparing their students, especially those from underrepresented groups from accessing the best jobs. I, I, we have seen a massive drive, I will say, in recruiting women and black people, et cetera. It also comes back to saying, well, then what about other groups um, like um, working class white people? Just on another point, just on another point, the way in which the government commissioned this report and then I'm not sure if they've officially backed their findings yet, but I assume they will. What a comparison I'd like to make, and I know this might be slightly controversial, but we saw the scandal in the Labour Party regarding anti-Semitism and sweeping changes were made and the government were very, very quick to uh, make sweeping reforms or sweeping actions against the Labour Party saying that anti-Semitism is a massive issue in this country and rightly so because it is and it does need to be dealt with it has been on the rise what I will say is that why is it that when it's an issue like anti-Semitism it's dealt with so swiftly and so harshly we know that um, Wiley a famous rapper from East London who's a massive cultural influence to a lot of the youth of today was completely cancelled when he made 
to be fair, quite abhorrent um, comments about Jewish people, and rightly so. But why are the same standards not kept for when comments are made about people of colour or black people? We see people like, um, apologies, I've forgotten her name, but there are a lot of personalities in the UK that make such abhorrent Islamophobic and racist comments who aren't, um, what's it called, silenced because it isn't seen as much of an issue. And also, black people historically haven't been massive supporters of the Conservative Party. There's a point to be made. Is there a um, political mo motivator here that's saying that the Conservative Party care less about the black community because they're less likely to get votes from them in the first place? And that's where the integrity and the independence of this report has to be looked into. I definitely agree with the point that you're making. And there are different issues in the, that seem to be addressed differently in the UK. How, as you were saying, with that case of anti-Semitism, yes, that should be obviously addressed swiftly. There should be changes made to correct these the comments, the mistakes that have been made. But there should also be the same swiftness to address other minority groups. However, it seems that that the problems are only addressed when it can be seen to help, as you were saying, like parties, like politics, for example, when they only want to be seen to address it when there's, let's say, an election coming up. However, every other point of the year or the years, they kind of disregard these issues. They say they're going to sort out these issues. However, it's just kind of left to the side. Mm. Moving on, there is a point that I wanted to touch on about the terminology used to refer to people of colour. So the report highlighted that the term BAME is an unhelpful term because it groups together Black, Asian and all other minority groups into one experience. And I do agree with this point because I feel like the experience of a Vietnamese first generation immigrant and a black Caribbean person whose family has been there since the 50s will likely vary a lot. But then how do we go about talking about race and what terminology should be used? Is it something that we should be focusing on? I know personally terms like people of color, etc., don't massively offend me I know they offend other people and this can make talking about race quite fidgety I find it quite amusing when you look at people especially some white people who are trying ever so hard not to be racist by trying to maneuver around words when they're trying to talk about black people they will sort of pause and they will you can see it in their eyes when they're thinking in their head what's the correct term here and they'll finally say BAME or people of color etc etc would it, wouldn't it just be easy to say black people when you're referring to black people and Asian people when you're referring to Asian people? Yeah, I agree that it obviously in lots of circumstances would be easier just to say black people or Asian people. And it even gets to a point where this terminology is obviously used for political correctness. And as you said, a lot of, especially white people, they obviously find it very uncomfortable to outrightly say black people, even when somebody from that community has told them I do, that they do not identify as a person of color, they do not identify as BAME, they identify as let's say black, or they identify as Asian. And it gets to a point where these people from these own communities are actually told, no, that's not the correct terminology for your group of people. You are a person of color, you are not black. Well, they don't say that you are not black, but they say that is not the way to refer to it. When, if you are from that community and that is some, and you want to be referred to as black because that is what you identify as, then these terms of political correctness should not be imposed on you because, once again, it's like, uh, it's like the country is choosing your identity for you. They are choosing that you are part of this marginalized group. And while yes, your community is marginalized, they have decided to place you somewhere which you may not identify as, and it shouldn't be a majority white country decision to place you in and choose your identity for you because 
that is the whole problem of racism where they are choosing your identity for you. Now I have two points regarding this element talking about terms. The first one is all of this talk about terms and political correctness can make conversations about race so draining, so tiring. The reason why people are so annoyed whenever someone talks about race because of such a a carefulness, such a a wishy-washy way of going about things. I think I've said another episode when I talked about education and independent schools, dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Dialogue needs to take place. It needs to be free and it needs to be very raw in what it's saying. It can't be so filtered all the time because it takes away from the conversation. If someone has a view that I don't agree with, I'd rather them say it as it is instead of trying to cushion their their bias or whatever whatever it is in in nice words and second point my second point is about um the way in which we record race in this country a lot of people have found things like the census and other um documents quite weird to navigate because there isn't a box for them the fact that the British have come up with these terms like you are British Pakistani or you are mixed or you are part of the traveler community. I have a friend who's Arab who finds it quite difficult to navigate some of those forms because there isn't a box for people from the Middle East. And he has to decide whether he regards himself as, what's it called, South Asian or whether or not he regards himself as white, both groups which he doesn't find himself in. And so he ends up putting himself down as white which can then silence his voice when it comes to allocating funding because then the Middle Eastern community won't get any funding because he'll be classed as white on all statistics. And so that's another issue to look at. To look at. I know in America, they've had a big argument over the way in which they classify um, Arab people. And I think a similar thing is going on in the UK. I just, and just quickly on that as well, other countries don't do the same thing that we do. You know, if you go to Germany and you look at their forms that you have to fill out, they don't record race in the same way we do. Post-World War II and post the horrible things that happened to the Jewish and other communities in World War II, it became a very, very sensitive thing in Germany to be um, to talk about race. And so they don't actually discuss race. Yeah, with that point, I, it can actually be argued that a lot of racial issues are not actually addressed due to this, to it being an issue as what to refer to people as, because there's so much, like there's so much political correctness, there's so much of what do we call these people and, the un- and how the uncomfortable manner of the government actually dealing with these issues because they don't want to be portrayed as let's say racist so in order to not portray themselves as racist they come up with all these other terms all this terminology instead of actually addressing the issue they go oh this is you may say this is the issue so maybe here's another box on a form and to them that's the extent of which they are willing to deal with the issues of the community Yeah, well, I think that's the crux of the issue, this this whole um, stepping on your tiptoes. We want to talk about race, but not too much. We're going to ignore our history of colonialism when teaching kids. All of this kind of half-hearted approach to looking at racism. The reason why we had the BLM movement and it was as strong as it was, I remember I attended one of the protests last summer, not because I agreed with the BLM movement, not at all, but instead just to witness the the history and, and the history in the making and to witness the feelings of the British public at the time. It's something I'd want to be able to tell people in the future that I was there. I saw what the feeling of the time was. And the feeling was an overwhelming feeling of not necessarily anger, but frustration at the way in which race had been dealt with, the frustration of being ignored the frustration that there was not an acknowledgement of there being any issues around race as consolidated by the recent race report. The fact that in this country, the majority of schools don't even teach 
the history of colonialism to me is massively, massively strange because a lot of the immigrants to this country came here as a result of colonialism. We know with Windrush, the people from the Caribbean came, came over here and th that was a massive political scandal in 2017 when the government tried to deport those people back to their home countries despite them having legal residence. I know my grandparents came to this country in the 50s after the Second World War under Clement Attlee and then other parts of my family came to this country in the 1990s after Tony Blair changed the law, immigration laws to allow more people in. The fact that we don't even teach these things to our kids is so strange, isn't it? If we're gonna have a conversation about race that they don't even know the history about how we got to this country, what role we have to play in this country. We don't even talk about the fact that in this country, we always talk about Churchill and the war and how it was Britain's triumph over the Nazis and how we defeated them, which is very much true. It's a part of British identity to, to have this feeling of pride that we defeated the Nazis. Do the British public know at large that millions, and I really do mean millions of troops from India and Africa and the other colonies fought for the British and probably were the reason Britain won the war? Both my, well, my grandparents fought in the Second and First World War, and their contribution has been silenced in British history textbooks for the most part, because I don't remember ever being taught about their contribution until I personally started researching them. And so I apologize if I feel like I'm going on a bit of a, a rant here, but there, there's, there's a frustration in this country on how we, how we discuss race. Yeah, and, and as you're saying, like your points are completely correct because there is this lack of history about colonialism and how a lot of many minority groups have actually ended up in England. The way that like British textbooks like to portray it is that they are the saviors, that they have kindly allowed these people to stay in their country. They, when they are even passing laws today, they they make it seem in a way as, oh, we've let other groups do this. We have let this happen. We have, we have allowed for this. They create this narrative in a sense that they are ultimately the most amazing government ever and that, that they are doing a good thing for these groups. However, a lot of people, for example, the Windrush, they brought these people here. They told these people that they belong here due to the history of colonization they brought these people here told them they have a right in this country and then obviously in 2017 when they wanted to send these people back they were saying oh no and then after that once that was dealt with the way that the British government wanted to portray it is we've kindly let these people who aren't actually legal citizens have a citizenship now when that is not the case they brought these people here well yeah that, that's that's the thing really is it's, it's it's so hard to have a very clear discussion and education about race if you're not gonna, even going to get the basics correct like really we should be teaching our kids about this on a on a national level because as soon as we because the the, the majority of the modern conversation about race if I'm being quite honest is all of this and I don't really like the term but this kind of woke stuff and the oh um this person looked to me funny therefore it's racism or this and this and this and I feel like that heavily detracts from the real conversation of discrimination, the conversations about institutional uh, racism, the fact that in the borough of Tower Hamlets, the majority of people of colour live on poorly maintained housing estates. That's discrimination, not the fact that the person in your coffee shop couldn't spell your name correctly. And it's those things that are kind of making the rest of the rest of us, I guess, the people with real frustration. Um, is silencing our voices, making us look stupid. The reason why people who align themselves more to the right are very much angered by the conversation about race is because they don't see the, the real issues that we're talking about. They're thinking someone can't spell your name. I've had people not being able to spell my name. Is that the issue? Because I wasn't crying about it. And so just bringing the attention back to, to what matters, things like Windrush, things like the housing disparities, things like 
the um, Stephen Lawrence case, even though that was so long ago, it was really not that long ago. It was quite recent and a lot of the attitudes haven't changed. I, however, also, I'd like to say that even though what you're saying is that there are a lot of big issues that aren't addressed due to these small issues that seem to be focused on, I do believe that these issues in themselves that are actually racist, like when they go to a coffee shop and their name is not able to be spelt and there has been no attempt to actually spell the name right, that in itself is racist, even in classrooms when you see people with long African names or let's say Asian names, they are given, they are sort of given a nickname automatically by a lot of teachers. And whilst that is not intended to be racist, it can be seen as racist because there's no attempt to actually like try and recognize identity because a name is really important to someone's identity in itself. And with that lack of attempt, it just kind of showed the lack of awareness, the lack of diversity, and the sense that it's okay to get the name wrong. However, what I would say on that is, and even when somebody's looking at you wrong for your race, that is racist. And these problems do need to be addressed because it's this low level racism, which can have like giant effects on people's mental health and how people actually view themselves. Although it seems that the media likes to portray it in a way that it is mainly just these issues. And whilst these issues are issues and should not be told they're not like real struggles, because yes, they are real struggles. It's the media likes to present this view in the UK that they'll put on a headline, black person complains that they have a headline similar to some black people complain that their name has not been spelt right. And they don't really give full context that they do get the point of view from both parties. However, that might be on the second page, which is in order of like the news, that's a very important page. However, then a small article would be done about the Windrush. And whilst these are both really real issues, they try, kind of portray it as there's only this low level, there's no big issue, just low level racism. And that in itself does make the media present itself as racist because it just focuses on low level racism in order to make the country look good. Well, this feeds perfectly into our final point, which is about what discussions about race are legitimate and whether or not people are devaluing the conversation about race. Now on the point, of names and not being able to spell names right or pronounce names right, I sometimes struggle to see whether or not the intentions behind it are racist. I, I know, well, if you've listened to the first episode, you know that I go to a boarding school in um, roughly Southwest London. Um, my school is basically all white. I'd say probably 90% white. And when I first got there, I really struggled to differentiate between people. There were a few white people who I thought looked the same. I got their names mixed up. And teachers did the same to, to me. Sometimes they got me mixed up with another person, another brown person, and got our names mixed up. Now, was I being racist when I got those two white people mixed up? Because if I were to say that that teacher was being racist for getting me mixed up with another brown person, by that logic, I'd be racist by getting those white people mixed up. Because, and that's what the issue is. I don't think it's, I don't think it's massively racist. I think it was a um, honest mistake that should just be seen as that and should be given the leeway for people to move on. Um, this sort of incessant focus on these very minuscule things like I've been called um, the names of other brown people I don't think that's a massive issue what I will say is an issue is when I've had white people uh, use racial slurs like well, what packy and things like this that that's the point at which conversation needs to be had but from my personal point of view and I know you'll disagree with me on this I don't think things like getting names mixed up is racist. And I do think that things like that detract from the bigger arguments about discrimination.
Yeah, like as you said, as I may agree with, may disagree with you on this, it's just, I feel like with your example, I could be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, but when, is it that when you went to the school, you got some of the white people mixed up? And is that correct, by the way? Yeah, essentially, though, there was, I'd never seen many white people before because my old school was majority sort of black and brown people. So when I got there, I, got, I did get some of their faces and names confused. Yeah, and personally, I feel like when you go to a new environment, yes, you will get people confused. You won't remember everyone and what everyone looks like. However, I feel like the problem that makes it racist is when you've been in that environment, people, you talk to these people fairly regularly, you're around these people, you've gone up to, I don't know, person number one and got and mixed their name up, name up with person number two. And in that itself, that is not racist. There is no problem with that. However, when they have constantly reminded you and then you go, oh, I'm just going to call you this anyway, or you don't make any real attempt to remember their name, that can be perceived as racist. But obviously, if you're going to a new environment, sure, you're going to mix names up. But when teachers are in a classroom with students every day and refuse to actually learn a student's name, despite maybe working with them for a year, that can be actually be seen as racist. Okay, so I, I, I agree with you to a greater extent on the point you just made. If you're a teacher who teaches the same pupil for an entire year and you still haven't learned their name or are struggle to pick them up properly, that's more of an issue. But once again, intention has to be something that's focused on. Is it carelessness or is it, a bias or discrimination from the teacher. Once again, the fact that we're talking about this for so long proves my point in some way, I believe. The fact that we focus on these little things so much, wouldn't you say? Um, well, yes, to some extent, it may prove your point, but we do focus on these things that you'd consider little. However, personally, I don't believe that these are exactly little, even though they are not the biggest struggle these are still lots of small things that do build up and it is these small things which allow for these bigger issues to be seen as more and more okay as if you're going to dismiss this what are you going to dismiss next mm. so so I'll, I'll give you a framework of what what i think should be used when talking about race just to maintain some form of critical or objective point of view always focus on intention if you know the intention, look at it. What was the intention of the quote-unquote perpetrator and why were they doing what they were doing? Whether or not someone actually takes offence to something doesn't inherently prove that what was said was, was racist or whatever. I think anyone can take offence to anything. And so, especially nowadays, people will take offence to so much that then you need to look at what the intention behind what was said and the context surrounding it. And also perhaps looking at the history of the people involved, is, uh, have they just met? Have they known each other for a long time? Uh, is a perpetrator in question someone known to make controversial comments? But people saying absolutely anything and everything is, is racist is an issue. It's, and, and I think we're gonna have to agree to disagree on that point because yeah, <laughs> I guess it's how, how it's going to be. Yeah, it's like, I don't, I'm not saying everything and anything is racist because, of course, anything can offend someone. You could tell them that, I don't know, their hair looks bad. And this is in no way rude trying to offend the black community. However, if you said to someone, their hair looks bad, and then in some cases they might go, oh, you think that because my hair is black or I have black hair then yes, I do see that as a problem if that is not what they were actually pointing out, if they were pointing out, I don't know, there's a twig in the hair. However, I do believe that it is, that these small things, they do mean a lot to a lot of people. And even though, as you say, to focus on the intention, sometimes like you can't just focus on the intention because there has been a foundation of racism in the country. And so unconsciously, people do some things that can be seen as racist. They 
are not educated on these things due to a privilege of not having to go through these experiences, which is why just focusing on the intention isn't enough. But as I would say with that example of the hair thing, there are some people that do want to call everything and anything racist if you go, oh, your clothes look bad, they'll go, oh, you're racist. And that in itself is a problem calling everything and anything racist. However, when it gets to a level of ignorance of, as you said, with the name things, then that is just a level of ignorance that they allow due to their privilege of not having to go through that. So I'll make my final point on this because I think um, this episode should start trying to draw to its close. Um, Okay, so I will concede that a lot of people hold a level of ignorance and ignorance is an issue because especially when you're working in an environment with people of color whether or not that term should even be used or not has been a topic of discussion this episode but in regards to people of color or say for example i'm a muslim um in a few weeks time i'll be taking part in ramadan the month of fasting i know a lot of teachers at my school sometimes just simply don't know anything about um, my practices and especially when they're working with with students with muslim students it sometimes it pays just to have or take that time out to research their practices or beliefs i think that would just make things so much easier because sometimes you do get a few silly questions that would be so quickly answered by some basic research and so yeah i do agree with you on that and i also agree that the victim of quote-unquote um, minor racism might not take it that way, especially if it's on a daily basis and you're getting your name mispronounced or misspelled, etc. that can, can be quite hurtful because it does slowly build up. But I do maintain my point that the focus should always be on the greater aspects, the, the greater changes that have to be made, for example, curriculum reform, for example, looking at disparities in housing, employment, etc. And those are things I will maintain we have to focus on. Yeah, I do agree that those things do need to be focused on. And just to make my final point on what we were discussing before, is that in no way should do I believe somebody should be called racist for their ignorance, let's say. For example, with the N-word, even though a lot of people do know it's racist to say now, there was a time when obviously people did not know that the n-word is racist and so for them to say it in obviously trying not to be offensive they're just saying it because they believe it's a word that you would refer to someone as that is not racist even if the word is racist that person is not racist they are just ignorant to the knowledge however i would argue it only becomes racism if they are fully aware and they have been told this they have actually been told the knowledge and they continue to do so. I'm, I'm very glad you made the distinction because I completely agree with you on that point about ignorance and racism being conflated sometimes. Moving on to this final bit, I want to play a bit of a game or just sort of ask a few questions just to have our audience get to know us slightly better. Can you name, if you were on a desert island, can you name which civil rights figure you'd, you'd want to be with? I'd probably have to go with Stockley Carmichael, if you know who that is. And well, I, I, I don't, just for reference, I, have, I haven't heard of it. It would probably be nice if you could explain who that is. Okay, so um, he was part of the Global Pan-African Movement. And he just organized like a lot of protests to do with this in, and especially in Trinidad, due around the whole, like in 1964 or around that. And so I believe that the resilience they showed and would actually help me get through a desert because despite all the struggles that they have, they still like obviously advocated, they were arrested for, at a few points and obviously and obviously there's a lot of civil rights activists who have actually been detained by the police 
However, I feel like this particular figure doesn't actually get enough recognition, which I believe just shows that the core, like the causes and things behind all these civil rights movements is there shouldn't just be focused on the person, but the whole community and what that brings to everyone. That's really, that's really interesting. I, I think definitely when, whenever we, people talk about race, they always go back to the very, very famous Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X to some extent as well. So it's good to hear people having a different approach. I'll give you my one quickly. The person I'd probably want to spend that time with is um, not inherently a civil rights figure, but someone who was perhaps a victim of racism, a person called Kunta Kinte from the Gambia or Senegal or West Africa um, region. They were taken during the transatlantic slave trade to America. And they had a very, very famous story of um, resisting slavery, essentially. And it's a very, very sad story. I think by the, by, a few years down the line that ended up getting the lower limbs cut off to prevent them from escaping. But if there's, there's, um, uh, what's it called? There's a, there's a show online. I think it might be Roots. I think it might be Roots. And you can, and you can look into that if you're interested. It's a very, very um, interesting story. So yeah, because I've got a few West African friends who always talk about him. And so, yeah, that's my one. Just to wrap up now, thank you for listening to this episode of the Atcore podcast. My name is Hamza Hussain. And my name is Rihanna Marshall, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Atcore today. Mm-hmm.